Hi podcast, it's Joshua Bowles, welcome back to the Crime Time Podcast, a monthly true crime podcast hosted by four pretty cool YouTubers, if I do say so myself. <laughs> this is Kirsty Sky, say hi Kirsty. Hi. Molly Westbrook. Hi everyone. Dark Curiosities. Hi everyone. And there's me, like I said. <laughs> uh, today's episode is... <laughs> hi guys. Today's episode is actually the first episode in season two, and we've actually decided that we're going to switch up the format a little bit. We're now going to be doing the episodes monthly so that we can dedicate more time to each episode instead of uh, weekly, which is what we did in season one. And we're also going to change up the scr- structure a little bit so that we can dive straight into the case to begin with, followed by case updates, and then ending on a high note with an oddity in the news. And with all that being said... Let's delve straight into the first case. Cue the theme music. Today's case is one that's quite a popular one and is well known in the sort of true crime community. It's, I would say, personally one of America's most interesting disappearances. Um, So we're going to be talking about the disappearance of Joan Resch. So um, (gasps) the basics about this. I'm excited. (laughs) This is such an interesting case. We'll get get started with um, Joan's early life. Um, She was born on the 12th of May 1930 in Brooklyn, New York. And not much information is actually known about her early life, but when she was nine years old, um, her parents died in a what was quoted as a suspicious fire. And so she became an orphan very young, and so she went on to live with her aunt and uncle, who became her foster parents. So she ended up going by their surname, um, Natras. So she became Joan Natras on like her security numbers, etc. And she also had two foster brothers and one foster sister. But there were rumours that um, she had told an acquaintance she'd suffered abuse at the hand of her foster father, but they were never... Um, well, it was never pursued or anything like that. There was no evidence to prove otherwise. Um, but luckily, her life did turn around and she uh, graduated from Wilson College in Chambersburg, Pennsylvania in 1952 with a bachelor's degree in English literature. Um, she then met Martin Donald Risch, who was a Harvard business graduate, and they had met at a football match and had sort of bonded over the fact that they were both born in Brooklyn, New York. Um, And on the 26th of December 1955, they married in Huntington, Long Island, and then they moved into a simple little apartment in Brooklyn Heights um, the, the next month. So Martin was employed at the Regal Paper Company in New York and Joan worked as a secretary at a company called Thomas Y. Cruel and Co. Publishing Company. And in the years following their marriage, they welcomed two children. Their first was a daughter called Lillian and their second was a son called David. Both were born in Ridgefield, Connecticut. And in April of 1961, they moved to a house in Old Bedford Road in Lincoln in the suburb of Boston, Massachusetts. Um, So while living in Lincoln, Martin Risch then went on to work at um, Fitchburg Paper Company as an executive, while Joan stayed at home um, to look after the children, complete household chores, etc. She was a very popular member of the community. She was actively involved in the League of Women Voters. And she made it known to friends that she wanted to one day become a teacher, but she wasn't planning on doing so until her kids were a little bit older. 
Um, she was described as an intelligent, friendly, generous and responsible woman who was absolutely devoted to her family. Um, but a few friends and neighbours did describe her as being unfulfilled by being just a housewife. So, uh, on the day of her disappearance, it was the 24th of October 1961 and by all accounts it was just like an ordinary autumn day. Um, Martin Risch awoke quite early to prepare um, for a flight. He was quite used to going on a lot of business trips so he left the Risch family home at 6.50am and headed towards Logan Airport where he was going to fly to New York City for business Um, and then Joan woke up Um, I think it was around about 8am in the morning and so she made breakfast for the children, she spoke to the bin collector, letter carrier, delivery boys and they all seemed to think that she was her normal self, she was um, in good spirits and they didn't notice anything different about her that morning. Um, She took Lillian with her and dropped her son off with a neighbour as she went to the dentist to get a cavity filled and she also made a follow-up appointment uh, following her trip to the dentist, she went. She then went to the supermarket to buy some groceries and then she returned back home in her Chevrolet sedan. She then made lunch at around about 11am and put her little son David to sleep in his cot at approximately midday and let Lillian play outside. Um, and at some point between 115 and 11.45, a delivery driver for a dry cleaning company arrived at the residence to pick up a few of Martin's suits. This was quite a usual um, thing that happened regularly. Um, and at 1.55pm, um, so a little while later, Joan told her daughter that she was going out. Um, she didn't say where, she just said she was going out. Um, so Lillian was accompanied by her mother across to a swing set that belonged to neighbours, uh, the Barkers, and Lillian was left to play along with the Barker's son, Douglas. Um, and then Joan just returned back to the house um, by herself. So neighbours witnessed Joan wearing a trench coat mowing the lawn outside of her home at 2pm and at 2.15pm Barbara Barker, the mother of Douglas, saw Joan standing beside her Chevrolet looking dazed and holding something red in her arms and Barbara assumed that she was just playing a game with the children um, as at the time she didn't actually know where the the children were but that's what she assumed at the time. And at 3.20pm, another witness, uh, Virginia Keane, recalled seeing an unfamiliar grey or blue 1954 or 55 Oldsmobile parked behind Joan's vehicle in the driveway. So police made an effort to find this um, 55 Oldsmobile, but they they never did, despite another neighbour having actually noted down half of the number plate. Um, but nobody saw the, the Oldsmobile either enter or exit the, the um, Old Bedford Road. So anyway, um, at 4pm, Lillian Risch left the Barker residence and went back home. However, after a few minutes, she ran back to the Barkers and frantically told Barbara that her mother was missing and her little brother was crying in his cot and there was, quote, red paint on the kitchen walls and floor. So Barbara Barker went over to the house and she was completely taken aback by what she saw um so then she called police and the police arrived at the rich home around about five minutes after she called them at 4 33 p.m that day 
And so from David's room, which was on the, the top floor, um, all the way down to the kitchen, through the master bedroom and the carpeted stairs, there were various spots and smears of this, quote, red paint, which was then confirmed as being blood and type O, which was the same as Joan Rish. So there was said to not have been a huge amount of blood around, like, a pint or so, um, but it was enough to be consistent with, like, either a, a nose a nosebleed or, or a head wound. So um, investigating the kitchen, it was in a real state. It was a really um, a state of disarray, really. With the, There was a chair or a table um, having been overturned, which um, sources tend to sort of differ on they don't really they they kind of change between a chair and a table but anyway one of them at least was overturned and the telephone had actually been ripped from the wall and was sitting in a bin which had been moved from beneath the kitchen sink to the center of the room Um, the phone itself had blood in the dialing holes and traces of joan's blood were also found trailing outside and onto the trunk and hood of her car um On the phone mount, police found a bloody fingerprint and there were two further single prints and a partial palm print on the kitchen wall, which were found not to have been Jones. So the individual whose prints they were has never been identified. Um, uh, Some other prints were found at the scene, but they were confirmed as being Joan, uh, despite the fact that at the time they didn't actually have her fingerprints um, until they... Uh, continued further investigations it wasn't until a few weeks later they actually found a record but they just went straight in and said that they were hers anyway so local men and as well as the tradesmen delivery men etc they all offered their prints to authorities but no match was made Um, and footprints were also not found at the scene at all but paper towels and a pair of David's coveralls had appeared to have been used in an attempt to clean up the blood and the telephone book was found open at the emergency number section but there was actually no numbers written in it because back then 911 wasn't a thing, it wasn't in operation. Um, But also it was found that none of the locks had been tampered um, so there was no evidence of a break-in or anything like that. Um, And Massachusetts State Police called around um, various hospitals to check and see if there had been any women who checked in who looked like Joan Rish, but there was no reports of any success in that. So on initial investigation, police deduced that, contrary to the evidence, Joan was surprised by an intruder and tried to contact help, quickly looking for an emergency contact number, but of course there weren't any. However, she was then allegedly struck over the head and by the perpetrator. Um, They found one single blood spatter on the wall that was like so high on the wall that police um, stated that they thought Joan had attempted to climb the wall because she was so terrified. Um, And police um, basically they believed that she was a victim of a sex maniac and had been abducted as they believed that the amount of blood that they found was not enough to indicate she had been murdered either by stabbing or gunshot wound or you know there wasn't there just wasn't enough so then her husband martin was then um told of his wife's disappearance and it was that wasn't even until 7 p.m that night so there's quite a bit of time had passed before he was told 
And so then he, he rushed back home and tried to help in any way he could to find any clues. So all he could find was Joan's trench coat, her handbag and some cash. However, he said that there was an address book of Joan's that was missing. Um, but she didn't actually use it for addresses. She put in various appointments and things in it. Um, but that was nowhere to be found. And her um, her grey top coat and her day clothes were also missing. Um, an interesting bit of information was that empty beer cans um, were found in the kitchen bin. But Martin had no idea where they had come from. Because he, he didn't drink and she didn't drink. So they have no clue where these cans came from. So police initially sus- were quite suspicious about Martin and whether his marriage was as wonderful as he had made it out to be, but uh, friends and relatives, school officials, former employers, maternity personnel from the Lincoln and Ridgefield, um, places that they had all lived before, they all confirmed that there was nothing wrong with their marriage. They had no emotional problems or any domestic issues. They were just a loving, caring family. There just wasn't anything to indicate that anything was wrong. So woodland and marshes, um, ponds and ditches were searched around the area as well as garages and abandoned buildings. However, there was still no trace of Joan. Um, There was a neighbour though who received a phone call from uh, what was described as an excited woman who stated that she couldn't get through to anyone at the Rish household and wanted to speak to them before she actually hung up and she didn't leave her name or anything like that. Um, And a Bedford motel owner told authorities that at 4pm on the day that Rish had vanished, a nervous woman checked in under the name Patricia Richardson. However, what was quite unusual to the owner was that she didn't actually have anything with her, no luggage, no handbag, nothing. Um, And her writing on the register was described as being quite shaky. So Martin Rish um, was asked to check this out and to see if it looked similar to his wife's handwriting but he couldn't quite he wasn't sure at all if it was hers or not um he wasn't certain but he wasn't rejecting it either so it's a possibility that it could have been her um so at 2 45 p.m um on that day a woman was seen wearing a handkerchief over her head and was seen quote shuffling north of the parkway in Lincoln and she was hunched over she looked cold and dishevelled and a cab driver in Cambridge recalled picking up a woman matching Joan's description and the unidentified woman appeared to be quite confused and repeatedly changed her destination on the journey and she paid the driver five dollars from which she took from a tiny paper bag that she had with her Um, and a young intern in Stoneham Hospital, in, also in Massachusetts, reported that Rish was a patient of his, but bizarrely the patient was not actually the missing woman, but a woman of exactly the same name who had recently married someone with the last name Rish. Um, mm, that's so weird. I know. So, um, on Route 2A, a motorist reported seeing a female hitchhiker at the time Joan disappeared and another driver reported witnessing a woman matching Joan's description walking along Route 128 in Waltham near Cambridge Reservoir, um, which was approximately five miles or so from the Rish residence. The woman seemed quite disorientated. She apparently had swollen legs with either mud or blood running down them and was clutching her stomach and nobody stopped to help her. Absolutely no one. What? Um, 
the reservoir was searched, but nothing of any significance was recovered. Um, it is possible that she, if she were that woman, um, they may have fallen into the pit along the route, which was under construction at the time. However, the area has never been searched or excavated. Um, so blood samples were um, from the kitchen were sent to Harvard Medical School for further examination. And the findings indicated the blood was consistent with menstruation, and it was also stated that Joan may have suffered a sudden hemorrhage, which could have resulted in amnesia. So as soon as this information was made public to the media, whispers of a miscarriage or abortion became quite rife. Um, It was theorised Joan may have suffered a miscarriage or had subsequently run away to start a new life with a lover. Um, But Joan could have possibly, now this is one of probably the more popular theories, she could have possibly had an at-home abortion, which was then botched. Um, And obviously abortion was very much a taboo subject at the time and was deemed a criminal offence. And I believe it still is deemed a criminal offence in some states in the US. Um, So Lincoln residents told police that also on several occasions they had been asked by an unknown man about Joan's whereabouts. So a woman reportedly received a phone call from an unidentified individual who asked to speak to Joan and another woman stated a man had approached her in the street asking to see Joan Risch and another said that Joan was absent from her family home for around two hours the day before she vanished but police were not able to find out where she was or who she was with and what she was doing. Um, And another really chilling fact that came to light when I was researching this case was that a neighbour allegedly heard the garage door of the Joan house, of the Joan house, of the Rish house, sorry. Um, The garage door was opening and closing at really odd times of the night. Um, So there was another possible quite chilling theory really that someone could have been living in the Rish home without anyone even knowing that they were living there Um, because the garage itself actually had this massive like glass window which had a full view of the interior of the house so perhaps the the perpetrator crept into the kitchen through the front door maybe when Joan was mowing the lawn at 2pm that day that gave me chills I just had to look behind me because I was like, oh no, <laughs> that's scary. <laughs> the thought of that is just absolutely <laughs> terrifying. Um, one man who was seen as potentially being a suspect in Rish's disappearance was 47-year-old Howard Cooper, who was a fugitive on the law at the time, and he had twice been committed to a mental hospital in Texas after being charged twice with assault to intent to kill and a man matching Cooper's description was seen working at a restaurant in Lincoln, Massachusetts at the time of Joan's disappearance Um, but he was never actually seen again after she vanished. Um, So in the weeks leading well, the weeks and months leading up to Joan's disappearance, she had visited the library a lot and she was starting to go on a weekly basis and she took out approximately 25 books that the police could find on a record in the library. Of the books that Joan checked out of the library, they included Death of the Heart, which had a striking plot of an orphan girl who disappeared, which sounds very similar to Joan herself. And other titles she read were Into Thin Air, which told the story of a married actress who vanished, leaving a towel and bloodstains behind as clues. There was um, mostly murder, which discussed numerous different murders and disappearances. The Screaming Rabbit, a mystery book with vanishing as a theme. The 27th Wife, a biography of a married woman who once again disappeared. 
Incense to Idols, the plot of which involved a woman who fled Paris to begin life anew in New Zealand. The Hunt for Richard Thorpe, which tells the tale of a boy who disappears of his own accord and a book he read is a vital clue to the mystery. And finally, the very last book she took out from the library was actually a biography about Mary Queen of Scots. Um, Martin Risch expressed that he was aware of Joan's love for literature, but he believed she was a fan more so of the suspense genre, and he had actually no clue that she was so interested in unsolved disappearances and murders. So they thought maybe she had actually planned her disappearance um, because purely because of these facts. I always wonder that, though, because it's like everyone went on about in her real life about how much she was devoted to her kids and you're like well how could she just up and leave them yeah you know i mean i know it does happen but you know well um police cleared um for example martin resch the delivery man postman milkman and dry cleaner they were all cleared of any involvement in joan's vanishing um and martin resch himself strongly believed that joan would never have abandoned her children like you said um to start a new life and he firmly, firmly opposed the theory that his wife was involved in some sort of accident and suffered from amnesia, um, you know, wandering into the woods and succumbing to the elements. He just did not believe that happened at all. He stated Joan was more than likely abducted and then murders, murdered, despite his insistence that she had absolutely no enemies. Joan was legally declared dead in 1975, and although Martin moved out of the family home, he settled into a house um, quite nearby. Um, and he never lost hope that Joan was alive somewhere. Um, so Martin lived the rest of his life never knowing what happened to Joan, and he oh passed God. away in 2009. That's really heartbreaking. Wow. Yeah. So going back a little bit, five weeks after Joan Risch disappeared, an anonymous donor left a plotted a plotted a potted plant on Risch's doorstep, something which was seen as quite significant as shortly before Joan had vanished, someone had left geranium plants for her in the exact same spot. Thinking many people believe she may have been possibly having an affair with someone, but there was no proof of this. But then, um, but at- if if that... Sorry to interrupt, but um, but then if that individual who was her lover left a potted plant on her doorstep after she disappeared, maybe she had more than one lover? Or maybe the whole lover theory just isn't it? Maybe it was just a friend or something? Mm. I don't know. At the time of her disappearance, Joan Risch was 31 years old. She was Caucasian, had dark brown hair and um, pale blue eyes. She was 5 feet 7 inches tall and weighed approximately 120 pounds or 54 kilograms. She was wearing a grey cloth coat of possibly the Peck and Peck brand, a white blouse, a jumper, a charcoal coloured woolen skirt, um, blue or black shoes, the sources are very different about that fact. And also when she disappeared, she wore a slim platinum wedding ring with some diamonds. Um, I think it was five five diamond pieces. And she also had a filling in her upper left molar and her ears were pierced. So the disappearance of Joan Risch is one of the 
in my opinion as well, one of the strangest and bizarre disappearances to have taken place in the US and is a, it's a very well-known case among both professionals and amateur sleuths. Um, with no trouble in her relationships, no money problems or obvious signs of emotional turmoil, the reasons for her disappearance have been widely debated with numerous theories about what fate befell her. Um, did she leave off her own accord and plan her disappearance? Um, and did she dream of maybe starting life anew, like in the books she was so passionate about? Um, was the in- was the unidentified individual who was at the house someone that she knew and trusted and was possibly having an affair with? And if she was pregnant, was the child Martin's or was it someone else's? And who was the woman who was wandering aimlessly on the highway with blood on her legs and cradling her stomach? Um... So the theory that is, is, like I say, widely discussed is that she suffered either a miscarriage or abortion at home and the termination, which presumably took place in the master bedroom upstairs, um, went wrong and so Joan went into a panic and um, then went downstairs to the kitchen to try and call for help but was stopped by whoever carried out the abortion because if word got out that they were conducting illegal practices, he, he, he would have been stripped of his presumed medical license if he had one and the pair would more likely have been incarcerated Um, and the abortionist may have carried Joan's body to his vehicle and driven off perhaps dumping her body somewhere like a pit on the nearby construction site or abandoning her on the highway disoriented and well disorientated and bleeding but also um, an explanation for the the beer bottles in the bin um, which was a piece of evidence that puzzled quite a lot of people was that actually um, I don't know if this is a well-known fact or not but during the 50s and 60s beer or Guinness was actually given to patients in order to boost their iron levels so therefore it's entirely possible that this could have been the case with Joan. Um, So the last official investigators on this case died in 2009 and ever since the case has remained cold Um, and like I say in the last few years um, interest in Joan's case has spiked enormously however the truth about what happened to her remains a complete mystery. That case is insane. It, It really, it really, I just can't put two and two together with it. Like, yeah, you know, same. in the, the the taxi driver who had who had the passenger that had the uh, paper bag with money in. There's so many theories behind that. What if she sold her wedding ring, at, like exchanged it yeah. for that money, oh, and then yes, that, would, that yeah. could be why she had mm. the money then? Like, yeah, because I mean, if she if she'd read all those books about disappearances and stuff like that, she would she would have gained a knowledge of how to completely vanish. Mm. In other words, get rid of everything that associated her with her old identity. Mm. So that's yeah. like perfectly possible that she like sold her wedding ring on, maybe got rid of the clothes that she was wearing. Um, yeah. But the thing is with that, though, the thing is with that, because I when you said about the whole books thing, I, I, in my head I was thinking, oh yeah, I th- I, like that's what I think happened, that she tried to disappear and stuff. But it's one of the most well-known cases. Surely if she did go off and start a new life somewhere, someone would recognise her if she was still alive. I wonder that though because like um, I remember coming across somewhere about how the like famous portrait picture of Joan um, doesn't actually represent who she really was because I think um, and DC will correct me if I'm wrong but I'm pretty sure that Joan didn't really wear makeup on a regular basis. Um, no, she didn't. So no. the picture wasn't really representative of how she actually looked. Yeah. You know? If that picture is out there, she would have seen it, and then she'd know what not to look like. 
Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, well, um, according to quite a few newspaper articles I looked up about this, um, the picture of her sort of made up um, obviously didn't really represent her, but her family also really didn't like that picture. Um, apparently, her former employer actually compared her to looking like a harlot, basically. Oh, my God. And um, so they had a lot of pictures that they published of her just with her family, quite candid. She wasn't wearing any makeup or anything. She just had her hair up, and that was a more clear representation of what she she looked like. So I think because this, you know, this picture of her um which is actually a really nice portrait in my opinion um you know people like you say would be looking for kind of a different looking woman yeah yeah um but yeah because i mean if you compare that picture to a lot of the other pictures she does look completely different i don't think i've seen the other pictures Google. <laughs> if if she's been reading these books and she's been trying to get together the way of escape, she would have thought about her appearance as something that yeah. she'd have to change. Yeah. I wonder whether there was some kind of... Because um, I know with a few mental uh, illness and mental disorders, such as bipolar disorder, um, in periods of mania, so you can get like hyper-obsessed with books and like a certain concept such as running mm-hmm. away and it can make you forget about everything that is is important to you like when you're not in that episode if that makes sense so yeah. that yeah, could yeah, have yeah. explained yeah. like yeah. a delusion to the fact that she thought running away was more important than her kids which was like that could explain that and it could explain how yeah. like she became she was like disorientated when she was like um seen on the road or whatever you know what i mean like yeah because like you say it can become like literally a reality for some people who have these sort of mental illnesses like if they have like this fantasy in their head you know they, they start to believe it's real there was another another little tidbit that i found out while researching this was that her son david actually went missing as well um very briefly uh, i believe it was in 2015 um because he was living in a um I think it was a mental hospital and he disappeared for a little while, but they did find him, but I just thought that was That's a... interesting. If he was living in a mental... Yeah. See, a lot, a lot of the time, mental illness is um, hereditary. So I wonder whether... Mm-hmm. I, yeah. Obviously, it's not our, kind of it's not really our business to know what, what illnesses the son suffered from, but I wonder whether there's a connection yeah. between um, that illness and the illness yeah. the mother had, because that, that could very well be the case. Yeah, definitely. So do you think she was she was um do you think she was like the police say attacked by a perpetrator or not? Because for me I don't think I don't think so. So I honestly no, don't know. Yeah, no. I don't think she, I think she um wanted to disappear herself A perpetrator life. would have left way more blood because if they, they were they actually wouldn't have wanting... cleaned up after themselves, yeah, would they? Exactly. I don't think. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Usually that kind of thing is a very rushed yeah, you know, but going back to like the very start, I would love to know more about that suspicious house fire that her parents died in. Mm. Like, yeah, you know, and know what happened. That in itself, yeah, a well, traumatic, it traumatic her... event that could trigger yeah. mental illness. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. yeah. Wow, that's a crazy case. It is, it is insane. And she had such a, a tough life to begin mm. with as well. Yeah. Um, she overall, she led a very interesting but also a very i would say quite a, a sad life yeah up until she, up until her marriage where she finally found light um but obviously because you know mental illness like you say it wasn't really discussed that much yeah. back in the in the 50s and For 60s real, I mean, you would if you she know, went to the doctor about any mental health stuff that just like call her it hysterical and you know there's so much stigma yeah, yeah. especially exactly. with like, women with mental illness 
The stigma, yeah. I guess, is insane. And the fact she had two young children as well, they'd probably be like, oh, it's just because you've got kids and, you know, it's putting a lot of pressure on you and all this. They would have made up all sorts of excuses like mm. that to cover yeah. up the fact that she was actually what? suffering from something You never know, that's, they could have been like, well, you clearly have a deficiency, so now you need to drink this beer um, to cure this deficiency. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. Do you guys think she was pregnant then at the time? Well, I don't know, because, I mean... When she was last, well, she was seen at two o'clock mowing the lawn, and then at two fifteen she was found with that whatever it was red thing in her arms. Yeah. People assume that to have been uh, a, a, an unborn baby, um, and the you know with it's fifteen minute time frame. You know it's quite tight. Um, yeah. I mean, I don't know if it would have been possible to have done a procedure in that time. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and for no- nobody to notice anyone, you know, entering or exiting the house that wasn't Joan, you know, and this car, it just seems really weird. Mm. Seems really far-fetched. What if that red thing was what yeah. she used to get the blood, like, all over the, the house? Well, <laughs> yeah, true. Possibly. Like, what, possibly, what if it yeah. was a towel? Yeah, that she'd like, used to, like, make blood called... splatters or whatever. Yeah. It's difficult. It's just... It's, it is. It's difficult to decide whether it was intentional. Or I not, imagine into, into, with today's modern technology, if that kind of crime scene was to occur today, it'd be far easier to to put yeah. two and two together and figure out whether it was yeah. a staged crime scene or not. But I think plus mm-hmm. nowadays they would probably have been able to dis- like decipher how like what direction yeah, stuff the blood the trage- spattered in because I think back stuff. then they didn't know it as well. Yeah. yeah. I briefly read that um, there was an independent um, look at the the blood that they found on the on the walls, and I think they came to the conclusion that it was definitely vaginal. So that would definitely suggest there was de- like a child involved, a pregnancy. Yeah. Right. Um, so interesting. It's just it's difficult to really decipher it and. Yeah, and also why nobody helped this woman on the road, whether it was Joan or not. I think that leads leads into the bystander effects. Thinking that somebody else is going to do something. Also, people see something suspicious on the side of the road and they just kind of drive on by, do you know what I mean? And Yeah, mm -hmm. because at the end of the day, most of the time you're better off just leaving it. But then that's because there are so many incidents, especially in the US, I guess, where there are people who pretend they have a problem... Mm. Uh, just to get a ride with someone and then they turn out to be a freaking murderer. Oh, yeah. Yeah. You know, there are so many instances of that. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. I can't you believe they couldn't, they couldn't find the car either after the neighbour had jotted down half of the number plate. You know, you would, I, I mean, know. I know it's only half of the number plate, but Still I mean, you know, they could have narrowed yeah. it down. And, yeah, yeah. You know, it's just, and it's a 54 or 55 Oldsmobile, and I mean, I'm not a car expert by any stretch of the imagination, but I don't know how popular they were at the well, time. Nowhere near but, as many um, <laughs> as now. Uh, but I also don't know how how the <laughs> no. registration systems work back then, because um, yeah. I imagine it would largely mm. be paper records. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. Which is a bitch. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, <laughs> but yeah, it's it's super perplexing, and uh, it's one of my sort of pet cases because there's so much that could have happened, yeah. and there's so much evidence also mm-hmm. to sort of completely go against it what it comes you think. upon the uh, true um, crime yeah. subreddit all the time. Um, in discussions I see it all the time and I always read it because it's just such a fascinating case I literally didn't really really know anything about this case obviously I'd heard of it because I mean I feel like everyone knows this case but I didn't really know anything about it Molly why is it whenever we sit down and record a podcast and like we're covering a popular (laughs) case 
you never know the case. I know. I, I know the case, but I don't know the details. <laughs> every time. So that is the disappearance of Joan Risch. And so it's a, it's a very interesting case, very perplexing. And um, let us know what you think about this case in the, the comments. Or you can tweet us at the, the, the Crime Time Pod on Twitter. Instagram is at Crime Time Pod. To let us know what you guys think. And that really does conclude the case discussion segment of this episode. Thank you so much for two Dark Curiosities for covering and presenting that case so well for us. I'm going to be thinking about that case all day long because it, it is really one of those cases that just so much to it and it's just so like what what happened um so yeah we'll be right back in a few moments with some case updates so the first in today's case updates um i'll be talking about uh, the grace malane case um Basically, a 28-year-old New Zealand man who cannot be named for legal reasons uh, was found guilty of murdering British backpacker Grace Mullane in November. And just this past week, he has been sentenced to life in prison with a minimum non-parole period of 17 years. Uh, the man appeared in Auckland's High Court, like I say, um, it was on Friday morning, and his sentencing was overseen by Justice Simon Moore. Now, Milan, what, for those of you who don't know this case, um, Grace Milan was a University of Lincoln graduate who was from Essex in England, and she had a bachelor's degree in advertising and marketing, and she arrived in New Zealand in November 2018. Um, this was a part of like a, a round-the-world backpacking trip. Um, but the 22-year-old the uh, died by manual strangulation on December 2nd, which also happened to be her birthday. Um, after meeting with the man who was convicted of her murder through Tinder and going back to a nearby Auckland hotel to engage in sexual intercourse. Following Milan's death, the man, again, like I say, he can't be named, packed her body into a suitcase and buried her in a nearby mountain range, I believe. Um, well, it was like bushland, uh, where Grace's remains were found eight days later. But, um... That case, like, was honestly insane. I remember, like, when it happened, because New Zealand's crime rates, like, especially homicide rates, are so low. Like, murders just do not happen in New Zealand. That we um, know of. That we know of, yeah. Um, it's just, it was quite insane, because, I, I, like I say, you guys probably remember when it was mm-hmm. on the TV yeah. when people were looking for her and that. Mm-hmm. Um, it is just such a sad case. I mean, apparently the man had a lot of issues. He was, you know... Um, he lied a lot like he was like a compulsive liar um, according to what I read anyway Um, and his family didn't speak to him because of the constant lies and stuff like that Um, and he did also appear to have quite a lot of issues Um, obviously no matter what issues you have it's no excuse for killing somebody Mm. Um, but I think the the Malayne family must be you know um, quite, I don't know the relieved. right word, relieved, yeah, just um, to finally have him behind bars mm. for most likely the rest of his life. 
like I say, it was a pretty, it was a very, very sad case, and these sorts yeah. of things just don't happen in New Zealand. Um, but like I say, it's it's good that justice has finally been served because yeah. you know she was she was only twenty two, you know. That's um, so horrible. She had her whole life ahead of her in that, but um, yeah. So uh, that's all the case updates that I have, guys. So okay, so for my case update section um i'm not actually talking about case updates um i decided to touch on the leah croucher case because a few weeks ago now it was the one year anniversary of her disappearance and her family are still looking for answers as to what happened to her so i thought it would be important just to kind of touch on it here and you know so that people are still talking about the case um so leah croucher was 19 years old when she disappeared from milton Keynes in Buckinghamshire in England. Um, most people who are from England and Britain are probably familiar with this girl's disappearance. I know that we've all been following this case since it happened. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, I, we will leave some contact details in the description box. By the way, if you, if anyone listening to this by any chance has some information on Leah's case, so. The contact details will be in the description box and case notes, is it? So on the 15th of February 2019, um, at around 8am, Leah left her home in Emerson Valley in Milton Keynes to go to her place of work and she started walking there along her usual route. She was wearing a black coat, skinny black jeans, black Converse high top shoes and she also had with her a small black rucksack. Um, And underneath her coat, she was also wearing a grey hoodie, which had the logo of her dad's taekwondo club on it. So it was a very kind of distinctive piece of clothing. Not many people had it. Um, At around 8.15am, Leah was spotted on CCTV walking along Buzzercott Lane in Thurston. Um, And this is the last confirmed sighting of Leah because she never arrived at work and she never returned home that day. She was reported missing and police began their investigation into her disappearance. Um, So there were a few witnesses who came forward to say that they saw a girl that matched the description of Leah walking by Thurston Lane that morning and she was apparently on her phone and she looked very visibly upset. As far as I'm aware, detectives have never been able to track her mobile phone. It was a Samsung phone um, because the location settings had been switched off. Um, It's important to note that the evening before Leah's disappearance, so on Valentine's Day 2019, Leah told her parents that she was going to a friend's house and she left around 6pm. But it's since been confirmed that Leah never actually went to this friend's house and the police have appealed for information from anyone who knows where Leah actually went that evening. There is also apparently reason to believe that around the time of her disappearance, Leah may have been seeing an older married man. Um, Well, he was either married or engaged. That's what it says online. Um, Although I read on one source that he can't be named for legal reasons. However, I think the police have ruled him out in Leah's disappearance or as a suspect or anything anyway. I also read on one article that was released just last week, I'll link it in the description, that Leah's father John has threatened to publicly name another man that he believes is hiding key information regarding his daughter's disappearance. Um, John says that this man knows something and is just not telling the police, but I don't know any more information about that. Um, Maybe more information will be released in the next few weeks. Um, But that was the most recent update that I could find on this case. That's interesting. I wonder what the father has. 
what, what is I know, what's me his too. reasoning for that. It must be something concrete yeah. for him to threaten. To threaten oh, yeah. to yeah, release Definitely. it. Yeah. But um yeah, over a year later. I really, really hope that her family get answers soon. Because, I mean, this case is just heartbreaking. You know? I, know. I can't even imagine what it must be like. Yeah. The entire case is yeah, just... Yeah, horrible. I... It gives me shivers. It really does. It's horrible. I couldn't imagine it. I literally cannot imagine. And also, Leah's... A lot of people probably know this, but her older brother did um, end his life in November of last year, which was just after the nine-month anniversary of his sister's disappearance. And it's just horrible. Like, now her family's lost two of their children they still don't know where Leah is um or what happened to her and it's just yeah it's, it's a horrible case yeah I I really really hope that she is out there and she's found mm. and returned to her family because I just it just it makes me tear up. It really does. And that concludes the case update segments of this episode. And sadly, that means that this episode is almost coming to an end, but not before we look at some oddities in the news. Okay, so this article is taken from CNN, but it's about, um, it happens in London. Um, and when I read it, I was like, this is so British, but also I've, I support it. <laughs> I, this, the, the headline is, the headline is, a fox sneaks into the British Parliament and caused mayhem. I love that. <laughs> because of all the fox hunting that those people do, it's like, bit. Uh, yeah. He's fighting back. <laughs> yeah. He's fighting back. Revenge. Maybe he's the prime minister of the foxes, representing his people. <laughs> oh yeah. Uh, let me let me let me read some more. So the UK Parliament's witnessed a scene of an even more cunning than usual after a fox rode an escalator and sneaked into the building. The wily creature <laughs> evaded capture by police and caused havoc as it padded across the corridors over four stories of Parliament's portcullis house building on Thursday night. I can just imagine all the MPs just walking down the corridor, screaming their heads <laughs> off because there's a fox in there. Oh That's God. so funny to me. <laughs> uh, it does say, importantly, that um, the fox has uh, no qualms about shy lawmakers, what it thought of them. Um, I'm glad it was able to voice um, <laughs> its concerns. <laughs> the, uh, the fox did actually uh, take a dump outside of Kerry McCarthy's uh, <laughs> office, who is a no. uh, MP oh, from no. the Labour Party. Uh, <laughs> and then the fox was ultimately oh, captured God. in a box and taken outside and released back into the wild. I love that. I think, I think he Me meant too. to put it outside of a Tory's house. Um, I'm, going, I'm going to link this article in the case notes just because it's got some really funny pictures um, of the fox inside. Um, and a lot of people have jokes that the, the fox um, went into Parliament to, uh, to protest the... Uh, the uh, the fox the fox hunting, fox hunting um, that yeah. some people yeah. are trying yes, to should. that people are trying yes, to should. lift yes, the ban on. Um, this actually isn't the first time that an animal has gone into the UK Parliament because in 2018, SNP MP Kirsty Blackman spotted a robin flying around the House of Commons. Now I'm not sure what the robins were like, what, what they were angry about. Probably Brexit. Let's be real. Um, <laughs> But <laughs> it's good to know that the animals of this country are uh, protesting. <laughs> yeah. 
Yeah, we really do. And that brings us uh, to the end of this episode. Thank you so much for listening. Whether you're listening in your car on Spotify or walking to two. Walking to what? Or walking to school? Walking to- <laughs> or walking to school, <laughs> listening to this on YouTube. Please do let us know what you think of everything we've spoken about in this case. Uh, our Twitter, as we mentioned earlier, is at the Crime Time Pod, and our Instagram is at Crime Time Pod. And I think um, if anyone else has anything to say, say it now. Forever hold your peace. No. Everyone hold your peace. <laughs> and with that being said, we'll see you in the next episode. Bye. Bye. Au revoir! <laughs> <laughs>